This is Cody Daigle Oriens, and welcome to Bearded Fruit Unedited, the raw conversations that are edited down into the final versions of our podcasts. These conversations contain the outtakes that don't make it into our program, so if you enjoyed the completed episode, you might find something worth chewing on here. Enjoy, and make sure you follow us at www.beardedfruit.com for new episodes. Okay. Thank you for belching. You're welcome, Internet. Thanks. Um, hi, this is Cody Daigle Orians. This is Neil Daigle Orians. And welcome to another episode of the Bearded Fruit Podcast. Yay, Bearded Fruit. We're back for episode five. Wow. We've been around for five episodes. We, um, pun using the number five. Yeah. Right. We'll high, insert high that. five? Yay. We'll insert the <laughs> pun in post. No, we won't. <laughs> we won't. Uh, so this week we are going to be having a conversation about representation, appropriation, and privilege. Uh, it's a subject that I've been thinking about this week uh, for a couple of reasons, but one of the, mo- the most recent reason is an, uh, something we talked about last week. Actress Maya Taylor, who uh, was one of the stars of the film Tangerine, became the first transgender performer to win a major acting award. She won this year's Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Actress for her work in the film Tangerine. So yay, Maya, yay. Yay, Maya Taylor, because we made, it, we made it so by talking about her so positively It's last the week. bearded fruit bump. It's the bearded fruit bump. Yes. Indeed. Which is also what my mom calls my stomach. Oh, that's a good joke. I like that joke. Yeah, I know. I'm funny. So in an interview with uh, People Magazine after her win, Amaya Taylor had this to say about uh, her win. What does it mean to have this trophy in my hand? When I look at acting, I don't look at the money or the fame or anything like that. I went through a very, very hard struggle. And for me, I just feel like when I do stuff like this, I have to let other people know. You can do whatever you put your mind to. The struggle was real for me, and I got out of it. What do you think is, like, what a wonderful thing for her to say? Yeah, in regards to, like, having that kind of a, a space and that kind of a, a and that kind of access to an audience, it, it's really nice to and refreshing um, to hear that kind of stuff. A little sad that that kind of stuff has to come. Actually, no, never mind. Cross that. Go on. Well, and what I think is really lovely about her having this moment, too, is uh, in, in the interview that we were talking about last week, she talked about going on something like over 160 job interviews and never getting any of those jobs, mostly because she is transgender and employers wouldn't hire her. Uh, for her to have this space in this particular moment and for her to be receiving a major award and for now her career to be sort of launched as a transgender performer the first to really have this kind of career is kind of fantastic well and it's 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 personally validating i'm sure which is always important these these great culturally impactful moments are always nice but also personal victories are nice too so yay maya and it's a wonderful moment for representation because here is an openly transgender performer playing a transgender role in a film that has received major attention and wide distribution, which is not something that we see often. We This year, tonight, as we're filming this on the Sunday of the Oscars, um, recording this on the Sunday of the Oscars, because we don't film, 
uh, Eddie Redmayne is nominated for his role in The Danish Girl. He plays a transgender woman, does but he, he is cisgender. Does he play the Danish girl herself? He plays the Danish girl, oh, yes. That's unfortunate. And it is, it is a title that has launched a thousand bad jokes at other award shows from people who are being mildly transphobic. Just mildly. Just mildly. Just like that, the first sauce you get at Taco Bell. Exactly. That's how transphobic they are. And so her, her winning is a wonderful moment for representation, for the value of representation, uh, and to show, I think, that you can successfully allow people to share their own experience and it be accepted and valued. And, and just even the value of that, that specific population being represented as creatives, as actors, it's still not, regardless of what their role is, it's still not exactly a field that transgender people have really been able to break into. Um, Outside of, you get Maya Taylor, you get Laverne Cox, uh, you get the occasional um, other transgender actor, it's still hard for uh, trans people to get into acting. So... Yay. Um, so it leads me to the other thing that made me think about this topic for this week. Uh, I read uh, a blog called HowlRound. And HowlRound is uh, a theater, theater commons. It's a blog that basically invites theater practitioners from all around the country to write blog posts and essays about what it means to be a theater practitioner, the challenges of making theater today, and the issues and challenges that theater makers face in making theater in the world today. And they posted something on February 26th, 2016, uh, which was two days ago, two days ago, by a playwright named MJ Halberstadt. And it's called Dramatis Personae, or One White Playwright's Appeal for Confronting Privilege on Stage. And in this piece, he writes about what he does as a white cisgendered male playwright to address privilege and to address the questions of representation, which he values. Um, And so I wanted to start by reading a quote or two from the piece and then launch into our conversation about representation because his piece brought up a lot of of feelings and made me have a lot of feelings. Feelings. I had a lot of feelings. So this is from uh, Halberstadt's piece on HowlRound. I feel like an awkward party guest in these conversations. I'm a white guy who really wants to see theater become more accessible, inclusive, and diverse, but I also really want my place to go up because, duh, I'm their daddy and I want to see my kids grow up big and strong. Inevitably, any time my play is included in a season, that is one slot that is not going to an oft-excluded voice, artist of color, woman, gender minority, etc., Yeah, I'm gay, but I don't feel that my experience as a gay white guy who waltzed out of the closet with zero fanfare in a supportive environment, moved to Boston to get two degrees in theater and got married with SCOTUS's blessing, qualifies me to cry oppression. Not when so many other populations and gay men in other contexts are subjected to systematic oppression in much more damaging ways. And that's sort of how he begins this conversation about privilege. He sort of... Positions himself as someone who is from a marginalized community, but in this current moment, not quite so marginalized anymore. He's really writing from a place of almost universal privilege, being white, cisgendered, male, affluent, because you could get two degrees in Boston, Boston, which 
Girl. I can barely afford to park in Boston these days. Y'all been to Boston Um, lately? Dang. (laughs) I can't drive in Boston. Uh, That's why I do the driving in Boston. (laughs) But he has, but he's really working from a place of, that many of us who are writing in the theater are working from these places. Uh, The theater is major, uh, majorly, um, white and male, white and male. The player, the plays that are being produced are, are primarily white. They're primarily male. And being, a gay male doesn't necessarily afford you any kind of additional oppression. You're you're well represented in the theater as a as a gay male. Isn't there also like an expectation even if you're male in theater to be gay? Yes. Do you think that? I'm yes. just saying. And I like to live up to expectations. <laughs> so in his piece, he goes on to talk about how he handles his privilege in his writing and the, the way he sort of deals with his privilege. And he's suggesting that this is how other writers in those similar positions should, should approach their privilege. Quoted from the piece, The way I look at it, we all have a choice. I can write what feels comfortable for me, or I can write what scares the shit out of me. When I write the scary stuff, I'm often trying to write in the voice of people whose experiences I don't know firsthand, and it takes care, and it takes making a few mistakes before I get it right, but that's the luxury of being a playwright. When you work with actors, you work to tell stories together. Each time I write a character whose experience is outside my own, I'm mining another layer of myself. The transmittal brother in I don't know where we're going, but I promise we're lost, prompted me to examine my cis privilege. The excommunicated lesbian twin sister in Not Jenny invited me to consider the male privilege implicit in my own coming out. The artist of color in the launch prize caused me to examine my white privilege. And I think at this point when I was reading this piece was, this was the point where the feels started to happen and they weren't necessarily positive ones. And it led me to really think about something I, I'm, I see a lot in conversations about storytellers. Um, the question of the value of representation in storytelling, that we should hold it as a value. We need to have a more diverse theater. We need to have a more diverse film. We need to have more diverse uh, television. That We all agree that that should be a thing that happens. But the question and the problem comes in how do we achieve that? And it feels like a lot of times we run into situations like this, where writers who are coming from a place of privilege are, in some sense, appropriating the stories of other people in order to work out their own shit. So are you saying it's cathartic in his, like, like, are you saying, like, almost even therapeutic for him to do that? Um, it certainly sounds that way. I mean, it feels to me like there's something there's something a little icky about the notion of um, sharing the stories that are outside my experience and the stories of other people's experiences are a way for me to work out things about me. That feels like a weird centering of your experience at the at the expense of someone else's story. Granted, this is a fictional story we're talking about. We're not. Yeah, you're not like picking up a homeless person and being like, I'm taking you to Burger King and feeling better about myself because I'm not homeless and that's my privilege. But is it really any different though when you're telling a fictional story about, you know, like I'm, I need to work out my, if I need to work out my white privilege that I'm going to tell some story about a fictional black family and write about what it means to be black and what it means for black people to deal with white privilege and this and systematic racism. Isn't that sort of a still similar thing? Well, wouldn't you say that you learn something about yourself and everything you make? 
Because, I mean, as a creator, that's what we do. Like, we create things, and then we learn something about ourselves in creating that thing. And I think it's less... I think think there's something... I think he's just not expressing himself well. Which is funny, because he's a writer. And he should be good at writing these things. I think... Because that opening paragraph is so noble and, and comes from such a great place and such a, of course, I want to be produced because I'm a creator, but also I understand that I am in a position where doors are opened for me for reasons that I have no control over. Um, that's an incredibly noble place to come from. Um, so I just feel like he's not expressing himself well. And I feel like there's there's some value in in saying like, okay... I'm going to create a piece that allows me to explore this aspect of my life, of my reality. There's some, there, there's some value in that, and I just think he's talking about it in a way that's kind of icky. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, so, so, like, last year I started this project where I, um, 2015, I started a project where I was making a portrait of every single transgender person who was murdered, And so it started, and I was collecting the information, and I was creating these sanctified portraits of them. And I eventually realized that I was actually contributing to a narrative of transgender death, specifically transgender murder. Um, And I also realized that that wasn't necessarily my conversation. That wasn't the conversation that I needed to add to. And that wasn't the conversation that I needed to perpetuate. But in doing that project, I was able to confront that. I was able to confront, this is a very noble thing that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create this, like, wall of these portraits of these men, women, and everything in between. I'm trying to create this wall of portraits of men and women. Damn it. (laughs) Because everything in between sounds like you. (laughs) I'm, I'm trying to create this wall of all these faces of people who no longer exist and were killed because of who they are. And I was trying to just create this moment of overwhelming. I was trying to create this moment where you're, where the viewer is overwhelmed by the amount of faces and the amount of names. And in reality, I was actually contributing to something negative. So while I had a noble pursuit, I felt like I was doing something that was actually harmful in the end. Yeah. I, so I, I think, I think what bothers me, about what he is saying and the difference between what you, what you did with that project with the trans women project and this, um, you stopped doing the project. You recognized that it was not a conversation for you to be in. And what I'm hearing him say, I can write what feels comfortable for me, or I can write what scares the shit out of me. Well, there's an arrogance in believing that you have the authority and the the authenticity to write what scares the shit out of you. I mean, that's fair. That, <clears throat> as a white male, that's a very white male thing to say. <laughs> yeah, like to assume that the story of a trans middle brother or the excommunicated, excommunicated lesbian twin are stories that you know enough about. Mm-hmm to speak of them authentically and to speak of them. Is he saying that he's speaking of those authentically though? Cause it just feels like he wrote those stories and then connected it to his personal life. I think that's what he's actually doing. He's writing these stories and then 
thinking about his own experience and how they differ and he's 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 confronting his privilege in that way and that's what i think is 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 like modestly redeeming of it is that he's not necessarily saying this is the authentic and i mean maybe he is i haven't read the article maybe he is saying this is the authentic lesbian excommunication experience and like yes that's hella pro- problematic but it really more seems like he's telling this story he's telling this narrative that he's driven to write for whatever reason and then connects it to his own personal life and i think there is some value in that there's some value in and like even just as a viewer in hearing a story like that and connecting our own experiences to that, however similar or different they may be. And that's kind of how humans develop empathy. So I think that's what he's actually getting at, but he's not saying that. I guess I'm the thing that I that I was really interested in in talking about is how do we determine where that line is drawn mm-hmm. between stories that we can enter conversations that we can enter into conversations that we as creators who come from places of privilege, how do we determine when it's okay to enter into those conversations that are not ours? Yeah. When can we participate or when, when is our participation, no matter how noble the, the mission, no matter how noble the intent when is our participation removing opportunities for people in those experiences to authentically tell their stories and to give them space that they don't have? Yeah, well, and that, that's the, the problem is we can't expect, we, we, can't, we can't just say you are gay and you are white and you are male. You can only write gay, white, male characters because that's problematic and I guess that explains why so many plays and, and so many TV shows and movies are white, um, because it's all white writers. Um, so I guess, I mean, there's that. There's that rub. But if, if we were to say you're only about allowed to write through your own personal experiences, then we would have even less representation than there already is, because we're already dealing with systems in place that are keeping people from those opportunities. So they would never get those opportunities. They would never see a black playwright and be like, I could do that too, because they are like me. There would be no representation. Um, So it's not simply, it, it simply can't be, you can only write about your own experiences. But I mean, we've had this conversation before, not on the show, but we've had this conversation about like, that's what Rent gets right. Rent's diverse cast is actually really well written in that, Tom Collins has to be black, but it's not about his blackness, but he has to be black. And, like, Angel is... Well, not Angel. I mean, I don't know. The actor was... Anyway. Mimi is Latina and has to be Latina, but it's not about that experience. And then Joanne is is black as well. But it's, it's, it's an including those characters, including those faces, and including those voices that that can be part of their story and that can be part of their character. But Jonathan Larson was not writing that kind of a story. And that's where, that's what Red gets right. A new play yeah. by Cody Dangle. And I mean, we, for the record, we know all the things that I think it gets wrong. <laughs> for the record, Cody has had that conversation with me very angrily in a Kansas City Barnes and Noble before. <laughs> rent um we're not gonna pay it i'm certainly not gonna pay it yeah it's my turn (laughs) not gonna pay it um was that okay was that conversation okay 
Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, editing Cody in the future. Sorry, future Cody. <laughs> You're going to hear that and be like, that bitch. So, um, I, I think what I was what I was feeling from his piece, and while I, I completely respect all the things that you were saying about where you feel like his intent is coming from, that it my feelings about the, his piece and what he was saying comes from being part of many conversations with other writers who come from experiences of privilege where writers are saying things like, well, I can write about black characters. I can write trans characters. I can write any kind of character because I have an imagination. I am a person and we're all just people and I empathize with people. So because I under, because I'm a person and I understand what it means to be a person, then I can write about any person. And I said this to you when we were talking about preparing for this. It feels to me like that argument feels like the equivalent of hashtag all lives matter. Mm-hmm. It feels like uh, a, a, just a, a refusal to accept that in this world, while we may all be humans biologically or we may all be humans technically and scientifically, we are not quote unquote all humans in the way that the systems that govern us govern us we are we all we're differently impacted by society by culture by government by politics by the way that those like systems of of racism and sexism and homophobia impact employment opportunities job opportunities economic opportunities how the police treat you how the police treat you like we don't all go through the world as quote-unquote just people we go through the world with very specific, unique experiences in, re- in relation to the systems that govern us. And I think no ma- even with the noblest of intentions as a, as, a, as a white male writer, there's no way that I could write a play about what it means to be young, male, and black in Oakland and dealing with the police. I couldn't write that story mm-hmm. because there's no part of me that really understands that. Mm-hmm. And... But that doesn't mean that you can't occasionally have characters or like that, – that doesn't mean that you can't write characters into your story who are people of color. It yes. Just, it just yes. means – I mean in, in the same sense that I'm not about to start making paintings of like famous Chinese artists because that's not part of – that's a stupid analogy. Keep that in there though. <laughs> um, it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to – and that's why I stopped – that's partially why I stopped my – my transgender memorial project is because I just felt like I was not the artist who should be contributing this kind of work to this story and that it should be somebody else. And even though, even though as a person of privilege um, in not only just because uh, I'm, I'm white, but also because I'm in an academic program that pays me to make art. um, Even though I'm in that position, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I need to use that privilege in that way. It's there's different. It's like the Martha P. Johnson painting I did instead. That's a better way. <laughs> like that's a better way to use my privilege and use my stipend money to buy supplies and make things. Um, it there there are there are more productive ways where we can use our privilege than that than writing the Oakland play or making a bunch of portraits of murdered trans people. Yeah, I, I, I recently encountered a play by a white male playwright that was about a black family in around 2008. 
who got into a, a sort of a, an altercation or disagreement with a white neighbor over noise ordinances in their community. And by the end of the play, the black family has to like move out of the neighborhood and their, their home is bought by somebody. Well, it's a church. Their church is bought by someone else. And the play is told from the perspective of the nine-year-old girl who's at the center of the family. Um, so immediately the narrative isn't doing any favors for black families because the black family loses. Mm-hmm. They lose. They have to move out and they have to leave the neighborhood. But the language of the play, on top of that, the language of the play sounded like something out of The Help or Gone with the Wind. I mean, it was very, uh, I don't know nothing about birth and no babies all the way through. Is it like historic, yeah, problematic? Yeah, all of these, like, you know, I'm gone, here, that, reckoning. Do you reckon I hear that noise? Things like that. In this play that took place not in the South in 2008. And the the, the thing that I was really... I, mean, I read the play and I just was like, oh dear God, please don't let this be a, a white playwright. Like, please don't let this be a white person who wrote this. Of course a white person wrote that. And it was a white male who wrote it. But I believe he had really good intentions. Mm-hmm. I believe he had really strong intentions. He wanted to tell a story about how racism is bad. But because he's writing from a place of not really understanding what it feels like to experience systematic racism and not being someone who's inside that experience all the time, he's just looking at it from the outside, he wrote a story that instead perpetuated systematic racism. Bless his little white heart. Right. And he, like, so like, even the best of intentions, writers who are coming with the best of intentions can still fuck it up. Mm-hmm. You can still fuck it up and not provide good representation. And what you end up doing is really kind of like appropriation. Well, and it's also, that's contributing to, it's not just not representation, it's contributing to a problematic view of what black people act and and what they experience. It's it's problematic. It's not like the really great scene in Blackish. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. There, the re- there's this really great scene in a recent Blackish episode where they really confront what it. Oh God, that show! That show is so great, and I don't want to like say what it's saying because it's not really speaking to me. Um, but it really talks about the anxiety of of being black in in light of in light of Black Lives Matter, in light of police brutality becoming a forefront of our current dialogue in this country. Um, and it's this really great moment of, uh, of where one character just basically lays it out to another character like, hey, I understand you think that it's actually really great to be black right now, but it's actually terrifying. And those people who are getting killed by police officers could be any one of us. Um, and that story needed to be told by black voices. And that's that's uh, a narrative that's meant for a black audience um, as well as as for a white audience to really connect to that fear and not not necessarily to understand it but to understand that that that's a reality and that's that's an experience that some people have and i think it's it's also another great reason why we should really advocate for authentic people people who are in that authentic experience to tell those stories because from the outside from the place of privilege it does look like a lot of things are great it does look like we had a black president so everybody's like oh racism is over it's absolutely not over Mar- gay marriage is now a marriage equality is now the law of the land homophobia is over homophobia is far from over 
And you don't really know those things unless you were really in the community. So when you're writing a story about those things from a white writer would not have written that episode of Blackish mm-hmm. and should not have written that episode of mm-hmm. it would have been like grayish. Side note, we should actually look up that episode and make sure a white writer didn't actually write it. Fair enough. <laughs> remember, remember that future Cody, editor Cody. Sorry. It was connected to that idea. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, okay. Um, and so... I don't know. Technical difficulties. Brain. Who knows? Um, so I guess <laughs> goodbye thought. Goodbye thought. It was oh damn it! It was a good thought too. I'm gonna I'm gonna I will listen. Take your word for I'm it. I'm gonna listen to this later and go. That's what I meant. So then, just really quickly record that. Then I just record that thought. Um, I I I was reading. It, it brings me back to his what his original uh, what the HowlRound article's original intent was was to talk about. He wanted to give writers who were coming from a place of privilege some ways to confront your privilege in a positive way. And one of the ways that he suggests doing is to intentionally write gender and racially nonspecific roles. That and sounds I, good. I thought there are some things about that that I feel good about. Yeah, that sounds pretty okay. I do think we should also feel brave enough to say cast black or Asian actors, please cast people of color. Uh, for example, when we did Book of D, uh, I just did a children's show in New Jersey called The Book of D at the Growing Stage in New Jersey. And uh, I requested during the process before auditions, I specifically requested that the cast contain people of color, that I didn't want it to be a non-racially diverse cast. I wanted there to be a lot of different kinds of faces on the stage. And... The company did a brilliant job because the family at the center of the play were people of color. Mm-hmm. He put a person of color at the center of the world on stage. And I thought that was really – I was very appreciative of that. It's not written like that in the play. But as a writer dealing with people producing my work, I said, this is a value that I hold. Can you please honor that value? And you're able to write that in your – in your play. And it's in the play, to... yeah. It's in the notes for the play. Yeah. To please cast it, make the casting diverse. Speaking of amazing representation, can we just for like five seconds talk about that made-for-TV production of Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston mm-hmm. and Whoopi Goldberg? Yeah. And it was just like, yes! <laughs> like, yeah. I remember seeing that when I was eight and just, and just being so floored by... that was after That was after my family moved from a suburb of Chicago to Nebraska, and suddenly, instead of being in a diverse classroom where next door there's a Spanish-speaking classroom, there was one person of color in my class. I went from a diverse environment to an incredibly white environment, and I remember just being floored by that. So it was wonderful to be like, oh, cool, brown people again. I can can feel comfortable. (laughs) And the other thing that he recommends... um... Oh, no, he doesn't. Really, he doesn't recommend that in the play, but he recommends Richard Rivers casting. 
The other approach that is not recommended from the HowlRound article, but something that I read and I, and I looked for it in advance of today, trying to find the piece to quote it, but I couldn't find it, uh, but was talking post-formation about, uh, about white people dealing with privilege and, and being confronted by unapologetic blackness. And in the article, he said, you know, the, 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 the author of the article suggested that what the real responsibility one has when you have privilege is to simply make space. Your responsibility is to make that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not so much to respond to what's going on or write your blog post about why white people need to shut up about formation, which I saw so many of. Your job is to create a space for the voice you think needs it's to, to share, be heard. It's to share the black bloggers who are talking about formation being exactly. important. <laughs> yes, no, exactly. That's what it is. Exactly. You shouldn't be writing about formation. You should be sharing black voices talking about formation. Right. And so that the value, that value about, and I think that has really kind of buried itself inside my own kind of writer soul uh, and why I maybe got irritated by that piece. Because what he's suggesting that we do is, you know, oh, if you feel like there needs to be more trans people in theater, then go write some trans characters, even if you don't, if you aren't. Well, That's that, not necessarily the answer. No, maybe the answer, maybe the real answer is that everybody who cares about diversity and who holds these things as values, that what we really should be doing is taking our privilege and making space. We should be, we, he should be confronting those theaters that are giving him a space on their season that isn't going to a brighter of color and demanding that they do a better job. Or saying, hey, are you, will there be writers of color on this season? How are you handling diversity? What are your, how are you dealing with diversity? Is that something that you would feel comfortable doing? Yes. Is that what you're, off the record, is that what you're going to do to Steven? <laughs> yes. Good. Um, Back on the record. Or not work, or not work with them anymore. I mean, yeah. I mean, those are the, the options. And I, I, but is I mean, it, if is you're it not going to work with somebody, you should say something about why you're not going to work with them anymore. Is it a difficult conversation? Absolutely, it's a difficult conversation. Is it a conversation that could close up your opportunities? Sure. But do you really want an opportunity with a company or with some in some sort of space that doesn't hold your values? That actively works against the things that you value deeply? Mm-hmm. No, I don't want that. I want to work with people who care about representation who aren't going to cast a white kid in a Latino role. I want to work with a company that isn't going to just find, you know, who's just going to be like, oh, that person is Korean. We'll just find any old Asian we can find. You know, she's, she's supposed to be half Asian. Um, let's see what Emma Stone's doing this weekend. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think although it, it, it does open up some really challenging emotional places and makes your job more difficult, I feel like the real answer to these questions of privilege and representation is accepting that when you're a person of privilege, you're probably occupying more space than you're actually owed. You're occupying more space than you technically may deserve. Mm-hmm. And and that includes us. That includes us. You know, I and I felt so guilty when I got into grad school. <laughs> like I did. I, I I felt and that was very selfish of me to feel that way, because um, white guilt is selfishness. Um, but 
it, it was it was kind of hard to come to terms with with the idea that I'm taking up space in in a program that is already lacking in representation that I am just perpetuating that. And what do I do with that? What do I do with that knowledge? And it took me forever to really reconcile that and to understand that I need to just do what I can and make the space I can and talk, talk about those issues when I can, when it's appropriate to, and when it doesn't completely burn my bridges. Well, and I even will even say, and I'll include this in the episode, our podcast needs to be better about representation. We've just mm-hmm. had two white guys talking mm-hmm. the whole time. And, I, you know, we're growing and I understand why. But I recognize that we need to do better mm-hmm. in that regard. Hey, we need to make space. My mom was adopted, so she's racially ambiguous. So I don't actually know my... I'm, I'm kidding. I'm very white. I'm He's very, very white. I'm so white. We are white. We are. I mean, you're Cajun, so that's almost... No, you're white. <laughs> I'm like white that somebody stepped... Snow that somebody stepped on. You're, That's you are you are white. That somebody was like cayenne pepper. Just a touch. You're sriracha sriracha mayo. I'm sriracha mayo. And Not even sriracha mayo. No, I'm you are you are garlic aioli. Garlic aioli. <laughs> and I'm just straight up ranch. Yeah, just straight up ranch. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> does that cover the actual episode? Or? I think that covers the episode. Though. I can't wait until we're living in. Like, we're older, and we have kids, and we're like, I remember when Beyonce dropped Formation. Because <laughs> you said post-formation earlier. And I just imagine being, like, rocking in a chair. I mean, like, I have put hot sauce in my bag ever since then. <laughs> Thanks, Grandma Dolezal. The unedited version of this podcast will be... Uh, <laughs> Nothing but Rachel Dole's It's going to be slamming. <laughs> well, that, so that's the episode for today. Uh, remember, we are on iTunes, so you can find us on iTunes at Bearded Fruit. Please subscribe and listen to all the other episodes that are up there. And leave a review and give us five stars. Or four. Or five. Or four. Or five. We got to work for that five. We need to get better representation up in here before we get five. Okay, give us four. Give us but, four stars. Or visit us on the web at www.beardedfruit.com to listen to other episodes and find episode extras. We're a dot com? We're a dot com. <sighs> See you next week. Bye.